the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the podcast studio in Stoneville, Mississippi. Tom's here with me today and Brian's back as well. We're going to talk about cotton in just a few minutes, but we mentioned in some earlier episodes that we recorded some of these back earlier in late winter. And so whatever we talk about today, if we talk about weather, it's probably going to be different weather than what we're actually talking about. So don't be alarmed. Just keep in mind that we have recorded these uh, several weeks in advance. We didn't get to out and do any meetings this year. So we're just trying to get as much information out to y'all in a usable form as we can. So that's why we chose to record some of these. We've we've always kind of prided ourselves on doing real-time information and we'll do that for sure as the season progresses but with these kind of early season episodes we wanted to get some information collected in a form that you could use so i kind of went on a rant there tom so i apologize for monopolizing that but it's good to see y'all no i I was just going to say when brian showed up today to record these episodes it's a little bizarre when you haven't seen somebody and a better part of a year and brian shows up with the most aggressive goatee you could imagine it's mid-south wrestler level that's a good way to describe moonlight as a rest tom chuckles like he even knows what mid-south wrestling is brian (laughs) i've picked up on enough of the conversations from the back seat riding around but you've never seen an episode of mid-south wrestling on Saturday. No, I can't say that I have. That's uh, right. I was exposed to more of the WWE, WWF as a graduate student with some of the forestry Dude, that's, students. That's not even real wrestling. Mid South wrestling. JYD, Hacksaw Jim Dugan. Come on, man. What about Venom? Yeah. Kamala. I'm definitely a little behind here. See, we got listeners out there. They know who they are. Oh, I, look, I can They're keep They're listening up. to it, and they are just spewing names out. Tim Sanders, that's for you, buddy. Uh, and Justin George. He'll be all, Justin George, he'll be absolutely. all over the text messages. There are people in this state that have an alarming knowledge of old school wrestling. But the unfortunate thing is, is there honestly are not enough bar-based trivia games that really factor some of that Mid-South wrestling lure into the questions that they ask. You get in the truck with them, and it is just priceless. Yeah, it's kind of like getting into the truck with some folks and catching some of the tunes that they listen to and needing to wrap your head around the fact that, you know, they like the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now what? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the best you could come up with. Well, the bad thing is, is the person I'm talking about will know that. So that's all right. <laughs> all right, Brian, how's that cotton crop, man? <laughs> yeah, you know, so Brian, w- one of the things that has really upticked in the amount of, of questions that we receive as university scientists and even within some of the research trials that we've conducted have been some of these seeding rate studies. How do those factor into early season Early season emergence and then, you know, early season kind of stand uh, ability that you're looking at across the field. How important is that for farmers to consider? Oh, yes. It's very important. I've gotten equally as many questions probably as you have. Um, and it's it's not a, a one, you know, one sentence answer. I mean, there, there's a lot to this, but there is a lot of discussion about reducing seeding rates. The first incentive would be to save seed cost. And if you can get it. So I guess the argument would be if I can plant less seeds um, and save some money in, in these tight budgets, what, you know, why wouldn't I? And then uh, 
if I can still achieve 90, 95% of my yield potential, which has been proven in, in a lot of cases. Having said that, in Mississippi, historically, we've planted between 30,000 and 50,000 seeds per acre. That's just kind of what we do. The vast majority falls in the 40,000 to 45,000 seeds per acre range. The further south you go, you know, in the, in the sandier soils along the coast, you're looking at 29 to 32,000 seeds. A lot of the recent, some recent research suggests that um, across the state we could be planting, you know, 30, 35,000 and even less. And even when people try to push the envelope to try to see where they can get the drop off, it's around 15,000 where it significantly drops off. That's ideal uniform, uniformly spaced seeds. How often do you, when you have an event that might cause uh, your emergence to suffer in, in some way, it's usually not uniform and it's sporadic in nature. You can get away with fewer seeds, but if you are gonna try to lower your population, there's many things to consider. Your weather forecast, uh, soil type what are you planting into are you running a do-all on sandy loam soil i would consider maybe but if you're planting into thick cover crop cool temperatures about to rain not so much the other thing to consider is the whole seed quality issue i think that we're going to see a lot better seed quality in the future but there was some drag in seed quality in the past couple of years so obviously you got to look at your um, germination on the bag of seed and you got to keep in mind what your target rate is, whatever that may be, you know, let's say if your germination is 80%, then you're going to still have to plant more than that to achieve that stand anyway, potentially, especially if any adverse conditions. Well, and I know we talked, Brian, before we got on this episode about, you know, penciling it out and everything. And in a lot of cases on that sheet of paper, that that's your perfect world scenario. So factoring that in and then capturing everything that you just indicated talking about how the environment plays into that because we've done some of that work in the in the pathology program too looking at some reduced seeding rates uh, and we do reduced seeding rate situations typically with you know inoculated conditions then looking at something like rhizoctonia solani which can be one of the big seedling disease causing issues in a cotton production system and that's certainly something to consider is that how that weather's gonna factor in, what your field history has been, what kind of seedling disease history you've encountered in that particular field situation, and how that may impact your overall seeding rate decisions for that particular season, really important to consider. All the stuff that we talk about with cotton is, a, a lot of it is seasonally driven. What you, just because you did something one year, or for one, I mean, it's always changing. There's so many mo moving targets. Um, and this is just another one of them. I think that we are in a situation where we could alter our seeding rate some and be fine in, in most cases. But we're saying that now. You come the third week in May and you're scratching your head, do I replant, do I not? And you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot. Why didn't I just go on and give myself a better chance to having to stand more seeds out there? I can see that being a real, you know, real possibility. I think we could back it off some, look at some more numbers. I think it's very situational. How much variable rate seeding do we do on cotton? I mean, given the expense of that seed. We're seeing some. Uh, some of your guys have, have this capability. I'm actually doing a, a Will Rutland, our grad students, doing a study on that on farm with a variable rate planter, and we're looking at different seeding rates and a 
farm, own farm settings should be very interesting. Uh, and we're going to try to do something similar, small plot to try to mimic that. But if you're looking for a percent, it, it's probably not a really high percentage. You know, a lot of your bigger acre farmers, wider planters, you, you see a fair amount. Um, you see more of that than you do the B-set split hoppers. For example, in Will's research, what's he basing the variable rate on? We're still ironing that out, but we intended to try to mix this across soil types and do that, but it's really hard to, I mean, you can do that, but we were having trouble finding soil types that were uniform enough to get equal quantities of both. Uh, so we set it up as a uh, more like a shape file thing where you have this treatment's going to plant that regardless. It's just going to, um, when it sees the different soil type, it's just going to plant those two, um, two at a time. And then we have okay. it set up, I think, on uh, like 16 different treatments. And instead of it just being, it just gives it more opportunities to plant every combination of, of two different varieties. So then on the commercial guys that you've worked with, talked to, what are they using as their trigger to change the seeding rate? Is it texture or is it a, a varus map? It could be a varus map. It could be soil texture. Uh, most of it is uh, or zone. I've also seen it with the irrigated versus a, like a, outside of a pivot circle. So then related to the seeding rate, plant population after emergence goes hand in hand with that. So what's your sense on what our minimum acceptable stand density is? 20 to 25,000 seeds are, are fine. And you can uh, expect to achieve 90, 95% yield potential if it's uniformly spaced. If you see, you know, start seeing uh, six, seven, 10 foot gaps, then that's that's not going to pan out. It's really hard in that situation to try to spot plant. Um, if it's at the low end of a field where water maybe flooded it out or something, you might could block that off and replant a piece or depends on the pattern. Usually there is no pattern and it's highly variable. So you might be looking at scratching everything, but if for some reason, whatever the calamity was, and it allowed it to be a thinner stand than normal that was uniform to some degree, you'd be fine 20, 25,000. Well, one of the things that can cause that low stand would be seedling disease and all forms of seedling disease, whether it's rhizoctonia, pythium, black root rot. Look at me rattling off I'm disease I'm pretty, pretty impressed, especially with the black root rot one. That's fairly rare. I, I, you know, I would say in the years I've been here, I've only seen one plant that I would have expected was black root rot. But, yes, I, I do agree with that. And anything that you mentioned, and really cotton's kind of an interesting situation. It, it is pretty sensitive to some of those soil-borne issues, and that's one of the main reasons that we suggest including those seed-applied fungicides on there and being so important to manage things like pythium and rhizoctonia, especially when you get into that situation where you may be planting into soils that would be considered uh, at marginal temperatures, or if you plant in front of a weather event that ends up switching off, getting really cold, or pro providing an awful lot of rain, that can certainly factor into a seedling disease type situation. And then monitoring fields shortly after planting for that to determine what kind of loss you had that occurred as a result of, of seedling disease is important. Removing those seedlings from the soil profile to look to see how that looks, 
right there at the profile itself. And that's usually where you would expect to see Rhizoctonia solani causing the biggest issue in those plants right there at that soil profile. And then anything usually below ground. And I will add from a pathology standpoint, it can be rather difficult to tell what those are at the field level. That's an unfortunate situation where we usually haul those back to the laboratory and try and look at them to determine what caused that. But assessing a field situation doesn't necessarily matter what the cause of it is, just that there is a disease present, right? That's exactly right. It, it doesn't necessarily matter which one of those caused that. You know, and most of the questions we get then is, if it ends up being a replant situation, well, we had a seed treatment on there. Should we put more treatment on there? And, and usually my response is, is that you don't know what the environment's going to do shortly after. You may have to replant that. Uh, and in all the situations I've seen in the past few years where a replant was suggested, we didn't see the same seedling disease occur simply because the environment was different. The, this type of situation, it can just come on you all of a sudden. It seems like cotton more so than other crops, maybe rice, depending on the situation, that seedling disease can just you know show up and just pop you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go from 60 to zero in a matter of, you know, overnight a lot of times. And, and that's that's exactly what I've seen in the past. Uh, but interestingly enough, n- not a lot of field calls about that in in my short level of experience here. But, you know, we, we have seen that in any of the plot trials we've done that seed treatments perform real well at factoring into that and really alleviating some of that issue associated with seedling diseases. So that's something that we always suggest. I saw a little of it last year. It was right there by the bluff. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you and I looked at the same field. That, yeah. was, that was a pretty bad Rhizoctonia situation. Right there, I guess it was a, it was favorable. The wind in the sand and the bluff, it just kind of channeled it right through there. So you mentioned sand, Brian. That's always, depending on where you are, sand blasting is a, a big problem mm-hmm. for cotton. Early in the year, what's the interaction between sand blasting and seedling disease? Tom, to me, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Is the seedling disease there because my cotton got whacked with some sand, or would it be there if it hadn't got sand I'll let you have this, Tom. Thanks, man. That's, <laughs> Tom's thanks, good for it. He, likes, for he likes loaded questions. I, he can see them coming, too. He knows when I'm, I'm bringing it hard. I could see that one in your eyes when yeah, you started I, asking that one. I'm not it. exactly sure how I feel about it at this point, but you know, I'd like to say in a lot of instances, and of course, there's no right answer to that and no, there's no wrong answer there either which is the hard part anything that opens that plant up to the environment which could be a result of sandblasting could lend itself towards increasing the amount of seedling disease that occurs in that field and that's you know that's about the best statement that you can make associated with that the one thing that I will add and since we're really on that topic you know about 10 years ago there was a big sandblasting event, unless it was about nine years ago, 2011, 2012, where a lot of cotton farmers and people that were working some of those field situations really felt that they had an increased instance of bacterial blight that resulted from that. And the one situation there is, is we always have to be mindful that back, the organism that causes bacterial blight is not soil-borne. It's seed-borne. And for once, I didn't even have to say that. <laughs> See, I listened, man. 
You think you think I don't, but I do. I'm I'm touched. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian mentioned the sand, and before he even did that, I was going to mention the herbicide injury as a mechanism mm-hmm. to get that pathogen into the plant and cause disease too. Well, and it ends up being that scenario where anything that weakens that right. plant because it's it's trying to get out of the soil and get a good stand produced. So anything that weakens that plant can lend itself to increasing the amount of seedling disease and herbicides can factor into that. You know, unfortunately, a lot of the pre-herbicides that we have for cotton, they carry injury potential with them to begin with, even under the best conditions. So that's just something that we have to live with when we're talking about pre-treatments for cotton. So, Brian, what about managing thrips? Thrips were pretty bad in 2020. So how should farmers compensate for that in 2021? 2020 was the worst I've ever seen, uh, thrips. And they kept coming back. I mean, I think we could have sprayed three, at least three times in, in, in plenty of places. So... With that being said, I would uh, just be sure that my seed is treated with some kind of a thrips protectant or, or at least go in furrow or spray behind uh, with orthene or acetate or something like that. There's there's plenty of products out there because it can really set you back. I saw some cotton that was, it looked like it was two or three weeks delayed. That, that's something we want to avoid. We, we know how to take care of thrips. Just, you know, look at your seed treatments, uh, in furrow sprays, and just try to keep that under control. You know, and Don, when we did the seed treatment one, Tom, Don mentioned the possibility for resistant thrips, which was comforting. You know, he just mentioned that, he, Brian, I don't know if you heard that episode, but he just mentioned that they yeah, had them I in West it. Tennessee and uh, for sure, and that if we had any, you know, if anybody suspected that they had some around here to definitely let those guys know so they could make a collection and, and start trying to get to the bottom of that problem. So, Brian, as always, man, Awesome to see you. Uh, we appreciate you. And likewise. Spending time with us, all of you listening to us. Apologize for Tom's lack of knowledge of Mid-South culture. Uh, he's been here long enough. He really doesn't have an excuse at this point. I'm going to have to bone back up on all of this Mid-South wrestling. YouTube, dude. Jargon. YouTube. Well, I, okay. You have, how old your son? How old's Ward? Ward's 10. Dude, Mid-South wrestling should be all over his wheelhouse he's kind of onto some other things right now but i get it okay well i'm just telling you (laughs) he's at the appropriate age you could expose him to some of his local culture man i'll take that under advisement (laughs) 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 can i have them on for a podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah that'll a few of them are probably still here so yeah some of them are actually alive all right so now we've gone way off in the ditch now Uh, we're going to jump off Folks, we appreciate y'all listening as always. And, uh, of course, if we can do anything for you, just give us a call. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.